Chapter Eleven of the Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Lost Stradivarius by John Mead Faulkner. Chapter Eleven. A month later, Mrs. Temple wrote to John, warning him of the state in which Constance now found herself and begging him to return at least for a few weeks in order that he might be present at the time of her confinement. Though it would have been in the last degree unkind, or even inhuman, that a request of this sort should have been refused, yet I will confess to you that my brother's recent strangeness had prepared me for behavior on his part, however wild, and it was with a feeling of extreme relief that I heard from Mrs. Temple a little later that she had received a short note from John to say that he was already on his return journey. I believe Mrs. Temple herself felt as I did in the matter, though she said nothing. When he returned we were all at Royston, whither Mrs. Temple had taken Constance to be under Dr. Dobie's care. We found John's physical appearance changed for the worse. His pallor was as remarkable as before, but he was visibly thinner and his strange mental abstraction and moodiness seemed little if any abated. At first, indeed, he greeted Constance kindly or even affectionately. She had been in a terrible state of anxiety as to the attitude he would assume towards her, and this mental strain affected prejudicially her very delicate bodily condition. His kindness, of an ordinary enough nature indeed, seemed to her yearning heart a miracle of condescending love, and she was transported with the idea that his affection to her, once so sincere, was indeed returning. But I grieve to say that his manner thawed only for a very short time, and ere long he relapsed into an attitude of complete indifference. It was as if his real, true, honest, and loving character had made one more vigorous effort to assert itself as though it had for a moment broken through the hard and selfish crust that was forming around him. But the blighting influence which was at work proved seemingly too strong for him to struggle against, and riveted its chains again upon him with a weight heavier than before. That there was some malefic influence, mental or physical, thus working on him, no one who had known him before could for a moment doubt. But while Mrs. Temple and I readily admitted this much, we were entirely unable even to form a conjecture as to its nature. It is true that Mrs. Temple's fancy suggested that Constance had some rival in his affections, but we rejected such a theory almost before it was proposed, feeling that it was inherently improbable, and that, had it been true, we could not have remained entirely unaware of the circumstances which had conduced to such a state of things. It was this inexplicable nature of my brother's affliction that added immeasurably to our grief. If we could only have ascertained its cause, we might have combated it. But as it was, we were fighting in the dark, as against some enemy who was assaulting us from an obscurity so thick that we could not see his form. Of any mental trouble we thus knew nothing, nor could we say that my brother was suffering from any definite physical ailment except that he was certainly growing thinner your birth my dear edward followed very shortly your poor mother rallied in an unusually short time 
and was filled with rapture at the new treasure which was thus given as a solace to her afflictions. Your father exhibited little interest at the event, though he sat nearly half an hour with her one evening, and allowed her even to stroke his hair and caress him as in time long past. Although it was now the height of summer, he seldom left the house, sitting much and sleeping in his own room, where he had a field-bed provided for him, and continually devoting himself to the violin. One evening, near the end of July, we were sitting after dinner in the drawing-room at Royston, having the French windows looking on to the lawn open, as the air was still oppressively warm. Though things were proceeding as indifferently as before, we were perhaps less cast down than usual, for John had taken his dinner with us that evening. This was a circumstance now, alas, sufficiently uncommon, for he had nearly all his meals served for him in his own rooms. Constance, who was once more downstairs, sat playing at the pianoforte, performing chiefly melodies by Scarlatti or Bach, of which old-fashioned music she knew her husband to be most fond. A later fashion, as you know, has revived the cultivation of these composers, but at the time of which I write their works were much less commonly known. Though she was more than a passable musician, he would not allow her to accompany him. Indeed, he never now performed at all on the violin before us, reserving his practice entirely for his own chamber. There was a pause in the music while coffee was served. My brother had been sitting in an easy chair apart, reading some classical work during his wife's performance, and taking little notice of us. But after a while he put down his book and said, Constance, if you will accompany me, I will get my violin and play a little while. I cannot say how much his words astonished us. It was so simple a matter for him to say, and yet it filled us all with an unspeakable joy. We concealed our emotion till he had left the room to get his instrument. Then Constance showed how deeply she was gratified by kissing first her mother and then me squeezing my hand but saying nothing. In a minute he returned, bringing his violin and a music-book. By the soiled vellum cover and the shape I perceived instantly that it was the book containing the Areopagita. I had not seen it for near two years, and was not even aware that it was in the house, but I knew at once that he intended to play that suite. I entertained an unreasoning but profound aversion to its melodies, but at that moment I would have welcomed warmly that or any other music, so that he would only choose once more to show some thought for his neglected wife. He put the book open at the Areopagita on the desk of the pianoforte, and asked her to play it with him. She had never seen the music before, though I believe she was not unacquainted with the melody, as she had heard him playing it by himself, and once heard it was not easily forgotten. They began the Areopagita suite, and at first all went well. The tone of the violin, and also, I may say, with no undue partiality, my brother's performance were so marvelously fine that though our thoughts were elsewhere when the music commenced, in a few seconds they were wholly engrossed in the melody, and we sat spellbound. It was as if the violin had become suddenly endowed with life and was singing to us in a mystical language more deep and awful than any human words. 
Constance was comparatively unused to the figuring of the basso continuo, and found some trouble in reading it accurately, especially in manuscript, but she was able to mask any difficulty she may have had until she came to the Gagliarda. Here she confessed to me her thoughts seemed against her will to wander, and her attention became too deeply riveted on her husband's performance to allow her to watch her own. She made first one slight fault, and then growing nervous, another and another. Suddenly John stopped and said brusquely, Let Sophie play. I cannot keep time with you. Poor Constance! The tears came swiftly to my own eyes when I heard him speak so thoughtlessly to her, and I was almost provoked to rebuke him openly. She was still weak from her recent illness. Her nerves were excited by the unusual pleasure she felt in playing once more with her husband, and this sudden shattering of her hopes of a renewed tenderness proved more than she could bear. She put her head between her hands upon the keyboard and broke into a paroxysm of tears. We both ran to her, but while we were attempting to assuage her grief, John shut his violin into its case took the music-book under his arm, and left the room without saying a word to any of us, not even to the weeping girl, whose sobs seemed as though they would break her heart. We got her put to bed at once, but it was some hours before her convulsive sobbing ceased. Mrs. Temple had administered to her a soothing draught of proved efficacy, and after sitting with her till after one o'clock, I left her at last dozing off to sleep, and myself sought repose. I was quite wearied out with the weight of my anxiety and with the crushing bitterness of seeing my dearest Constance's feelings so wounded. Yet in spite, or rather perhaps on account of my trouble, my head had scarcely touched my pillow ere I fell into a deep sleep. A room in the south wing had been converted for the nonce into a nursery, and for the convenience of being near her infant, Constance now slept in a room adjoining. As this portion of the house was somewhat isolated, Mrs. Temple had suggested that I should keep her daughter company and occupy a room in the same passage, only removed a few doors, and this I had accordingly done. I was aroused from my sleep that night by someone knocking gently on the door of my bedroom, but it was some seconds before my thoughts became sufficiently awake to allow me to remember where I was. There was some moonlight, but I lighted a candle, and looking at my watch, saw that it was two o'clock. I concluded that either Constance or her baby was unwell, and that the nurse needed my assistance. So I left my bed, and moving to the door, asked softly who was there. It was, to my surprise, the voice of Constance that replied, "'Oh, Sophie, let me in.' In a second I had opened the door and found my poor sister wearing only her nightdress and standing in the moonlight before me. She looked frightened and unusually pale in her white dress and with the cold gleam of the moon upon her. At first I thought she was walking in her sleep and perhaps rehearsing again in her dreams the troubles which dogged her waking footsteps. I took her gently by the arm, saying, "'Dearest Constance, come back at once to bed.' you will take cold. She was not asleep, however, but made a motion of silence, and said in a terrified whisper, Hush! Do you hear nothing? 
There was something so vague and yet so mysterious in the question and in her evident perturbation that I was infected too by her alarm. I felt myself shiver as I strained my ear to catch, if possible, the slightest sound. But a complete silence pervaded everything. I could hear nothing. "'Can you hear it?' she said again. All sorts of images of ill presented themselves to my imagination. I thought the baby might be ill with croup, and that she was listening for some stertorous breath of anguish, and then the dread came over me that perhaps her sorrows had been too much for her, and that reason had left her seat. At that thought the marrow froze in my bones. Hush! she said again, and just at that moment, as I strained my ears, I thought I caught upon the sleeping air a distant and very faint murmur. Oh, what is it, Constance? I said you will drive me mad. And while I spoke, the murmur seemed to resolve itself into the vibration, felt almost rather than heard, of some distant musical instrument. I stepped past her into the passage. All was deadly still, but I could perceive that music was being played somewhere far away, and almost at the same minute my ears recognized faintly but unmistakably the gagliarda of the Areopagita. I have already mentioned that for some reason which I can scarcely explain, this melody was very repugnant to me. It seemed associated in some strange and intimate way with my brother's indisposition and moral decline. Almost at the moment that I had heard it first two years ago, peace seemed to have risen up and left our house, gathering her skirts about her as we read that the angels left the temple at the siege of Jerusalem and now it was even more detestable to my ears, recalling as it did too vividly the cruel events of the preceding evening. "'John must be sitting up playing,' I said. "'Yes,' she answered. "'But why is he in this part of the house, and why does he always play that tune?' It was as if some irresistible attraction drew us towards the music. Constance took my hand in hers, and we moved together slowly down the passage, the wind had risen, and though there was a bright moon, her beams were constantly eclipsed by driving clouds. Still there was light enough to guide us, and I extinguished the candle. As we reached the end of the passage, the air of the Gagliardo grew more and more distinct. Our passage opened on to a broad landing with a balustrade, and from one side of it ran out the picture gallery which you know. I looked at Constance significantly. It was evident that John was playing in this gallery. We crossed the landing, treading carefully and making no noise with our naked feet, for both of us had been too excited even to think of putting on shoes. We could now see the whole length of the gallery. My poor brother sat in the oriel window of which I have before spoken. He was sitting so as to face the picture of Adrian Temple and the great windows of the oriel flung a strong light on him. At times a cloud hid the moon, and all was plunged into darkness. But in a moment the cold light fell full on him, and we could trace every feature as in a picture. He had evidently not been to bed, for he was fully dressed, exactly as he had left us in the drawing-room five hours earlier, when Constance was weeping over his thoughtless words. He was playing the violin, playing with a passion and reckless energy which I had never seen, and hoped never to see again. 
Perhaps he remembered that this spot was far removed from the rest of the house, or perhaps he was careless whether any were awake and listening to him or not. But it seemed to me that he was playing with a sonorous strength greater than I had thought possible for a single violin. There came from his instrument such a volume and torrent of melody as to fill the gallery so full, as it were, of sound that it throbbed and vibrated again. He kept his eyes fixed on something at the opposite side of the gallery. We could not indeed see on what, but I have no doubt at all that it was the portrait of Adrian Temple. His gaze was eager and expectant, as though he were waiting for something to occur which did not. I knew that he had been growing thin of late, but this was the first time I had realized how sunk were the hollows of his eyes and how haggard his features had become. It may have been some effect of moonlight which I do not well understand, but his fine-cut face, once so handsome, looked on this night worn and thin like that of an old man. He never for a moment ceased playing. It was always one same dreadful melody, the Gagliarda of the Areopagita and he repeated it time after time with the perseverance and apparent aimlessness of an automaton. He did not see us, and we made no sign, standing afar off in silent horror at that nocturnal sight. Constance clutched me by the arm. She was so pale that I perceived it even in the moonlight. Sophie, she said, he is sitting in the same place as on the first night when he told me how he loved me. I could answer nothing. My voice was frozen in me. I could only stare at my brother's poor withered face, realizing then for the first time that he must be mad, and that it was the haunting of the Gagliarda that had made him so. We stood there, I believe, for half an hour without speech or motion, and all the time that sad figure at the end of the gallery continued its performance. Suddenly he stopped and an expression of frantic despair came over his face as he laid down the violin and buried his head in his hands. I could bear it no longer. Constance, I said, come back to bed. We can do nothing. So we turned and crept away silently as we had come. Only as we crossed the landing, Constance stopped and looked back for a minute with a heartbroken yearning at the man she loved. He had taken his hands from his head, and she saw the profile of his face clear-cut and hard in the white moonlight. It was the last time her eyes ever looked upon it. She made for a moment as if she would turn back and go to him. But her courage failed her, and we went on. Before we reached her room we heard in the distance, faintly but distinctly, the burden of the Gagliarda. End of chapter 11